This morning we will uh, look at some of the prayers of Yom Kippur. Let me say that the Yom Kippur service has many interesting features to it, unique features. Obviously, it's if we had to pick out one day of prayer, it's Yom, it's Yom Kippur. And uh, first of all, there are more prayers on Yom Kippur than any other day that we have. And, and the way we, at least our practice, is that on Yom Kippur we have five, five services. The additional service of Musaf that we have on all the festivals. And, and on top of that, we have what's called Ne'ilah. The Ne'ilah service, which in the Talmud is a service that was uh, performed on, on all fast days. But nowadays the way it works out, we only have one real, we have two fast days on our calendar, real fast days. One is, of course, uh, Yom Kippur, and the other is Tisha B'Av. All the other fast days that we have are not actually in the full sense of fast day, because we're only fasting half a day, which is very, actually very strange. So the only two days we really have is Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. In Tisha B'Av, we don't say Nila. We don't say Nila on Tisha B'Av. Why we don't say Nila on Tisha B'Av is a very good question, but we don't. And uh, part of it has to do, I think, with the idea that Tisha B'Av, apart from being a fast day, is a day of, of national mourning. And I've spoken many times about the fact that the mourner actually limits prayer. The mourner does, says less prayer. The faster says more prayer. So on Tisha B'Av, we have a conflict there. On one hand, we're mourners, so we, should, we say less. We also, on Tisha by the way, we, Ashkenazim, on Tisha B'Av, and I think even the Spartan nowadays, we don't say Slichot on Tisha B'Av either, which is remarkable. We say Slichot on all the minor fasts, including even Tani Esther, those special penitential prayers. Yom Kippur is very central. But on Tisha B'Av, you'd expect many Slichot. And a thousand years ago they said them, but we have not said Slichot. We Ashkenazim don't say Slichot on Tisha B'Av, and for the same reason. Because mourner is a limit prayer. The mourner is not in a position to pray. The mourner is involved with the event of the moment. So Tisha B'Av has an interesting duality and actually conflict. Yom Kippur, of course, does not. Yom Kippur, we have Shrichot and we have Ne'ilah as well. But as far as Ne'ilah is concerned, it's an additional prayer. The Ramam calls it the additional prayer of Ne'ilah. And before I begin, I want to tell you uh, a, an approach, two different approaches to Ne'ilah, which actually reflect two different approaches to prayer. So we'll start with the... It's not a joke exactly, it's a... The, the Rambam, when he talks about the Rambam lists the prayers on all the different days in his, in his laws of prayer. So every day we pray three times, he says. On special occasions, there's an additional prayer. On the holy days, there's Musaf, that's the fourth prayer. And on the fast days, he says, we have a Tefillah Yeterah. We add in another prayer. And I remember many years ago, Rabbi Soloveitchik, read the Rambam very carefully, said that it appears from the Rambam, he says, you add in the Ewa, he says that if someone didn't, you have to add it. So it's an additional prayer. So if you prayed four times, you say you pray five times. But let's say you didn't pray at all. Then he wanted to say, the Rambam would say, you don't say in the Ewa. In the Ewa, you're adding on to what you say. But if you didn't pray at all. And it reminded me of a story I once heard in, uh, I forget who I heard it from, but one of the Kalbach crew, that the following story, there was a, some Hasidish Rebbe said about himself and he was a young man he was maybe 13 years old and he left his town to, to be with, with, with some other Rebbe I, I don't remember which one and he got to the town to daven with this great Rebbe and when he got there 
he felt very sick. So he actually was in his room and he actually couldn't get out of the room. So Kol Nidre missed. He, he couldn't get to the shul. He was just stuck. He said, maybe in the morning I'll feel better. So in the morning, he actually felt worse. And he couldn't even get up in the morning at all. So the day is passing. Shachrit he missed. Musaf he missed. Minchi he misses. Finally, towards the end of the day, what's he going to do? So he dragged himself to the synagogue. He was very embarrassed. We sat in the last row, all the way in the corner. He was 13 years old. This Rebbe had the practice that he didn't lead the last Ne'ilah himself. He would choose one of his people to lead the davening. So he walks around. He points at this kid in the corner. This, him. He says, you get up. You lead Ne'ilah. So the kid didn't know what to say. Later he became a big Rebbe. I forget what it was. He said, why do you want me? He says, I want somebody who, who, uh, who uh, hasn't prayed yet. That's the... Now that is a, <laughs> it's a difference, all the difference of the world. I'm, I'm with the Rebbe, basically, you know. The idea of Ne'ilah is, we act as if we haven't prayed, which of course is what Ne'ilah is about. At the end of the day, with all the prayers and everything, we, we haven't said anything. And that last, it's, it's, it's the desperation of Ne'ilah, it's very special. It's the desperation. That's why there's actually many different practices about Ne'ilah. There's one custom state very fast, actually. You're rushing, to, you're not because you want to finish on time, but because... You're desperate. The words just run out, you know. And um, so that's Ne'ila. Maybe we'll get to Ne'ila later on. It's very special. And we only, we're, our practice is Ne'ila only on, only, on, uh, only on Yom Kippur. I wanted just this morning to point out some of the interesting features, unique features of the, of the Yom Kippur service, service in the, in the larger sense, and um, point out some of the more interesting things that we are encountering on, on Yom Kippur. I mean, different people have different practices uh, about the service on Yom Kippur. There is the classical service of Yom Kippur, which is, has been maintained by not too many communities. Uh, the Sephardic communities have maintained their traditions. The German Jews have maintained the traditions, the Ekis, and a few other people who care about sort of keeping it the way it was in terms of the structures. But for the most part, all the other synagogues have not fully maintained their, their traditions. They've chopped things out, etc. And unfortunately, they make the, often they have chopped things out in the, in the, in the wrong place. I Maybe I'll get to that later. But let's start with the beginning, and we'll move forward and try to touch some of the highlights, and if anybody has questions, I'll try to respond. The first interesting thing about Yom Kippur takes place before Yom Kippur, actually something very unusual about the Yom Kippur service. Now, what I'm, again, many people have different things. There are different congregations. There's the Reform liberal congregations. They say less. They say other. I'm talking about the classical prayer book. That's what I'm talking about. I don't care where you pray, actually. It makes no difference to me. But everybody should know the classical prayer book. Because all the changes are changes from, initially, changing from responding to the classical master. And therefore... It's incumbent upon all of us to understand the, the machzor. The first thing about Yom Kippur that's very interesting is before Yom Kippur starts. And that is that Erev Yom Kippur, which is a mincha time, the afternoon before Yom Kippur, at mincha, there are two interesting things. First of all, the custom is to pray mincha before we eat. Before we eat. That's number one. And in the mincha before Yom Kippur, we are in the private, in the silent Amida, we are saying Vidui. The confessions 
the confessions of Yom Kippur that are a central service to Yom Kippur and all of the prayers of Yom Kippur we are, having, we are confessing our sins and there's a, a fixed text there's a long confession and a short confession and we are saying these confessions actually in the, the, the prayer before Yom Kippur I mentioned last night that that, that, that that is a common practice if you open up any standard sitter, machzor, you'll find that in Mincha, before Yom Kippur there's a confession there is another practice which is less well known the Ramban talks about it, discusses it in his commentary on the Talmud and it's a common practice certainly within the, I would say more traditional or more rigidly orthodox world and even amongst the so-called modern orthodox and that is to say a vidui, to say a confession just before Kol Nidre. As just before Kol Nidre, to say a confession, there are several of them. There's one I mentioned last night, the Tfilozaka, which is a well-known confession. It's not, it's not for women. It's actually written for men and not for women, but that's another story. And then there are others, actually. There are... Um, there are very beautiful... Uh, confessions written by the Gaonim Sadia Gaon is a terrific and then there's one by the Ibn Ezra which I say is very beautiful and I mentioned last night that Eyud Banai has wrote a, a song for it it's very good, if you get it on YouTube probably it's excellent, mm-hmm. it's terrific actually so those are all con- uh, different confessions and that's the custom actually that just before Kol uh, Nidre uh, many people are saying one of these confessions. Now, let's start with, uh, let me get back to the first point about this business of saying the confession before we eat. And there is, and, and then it's the other practice of actually saying another confession as Yom Kippur is beginning, just before Kol Nidre. So, in, in this respect, I'll, I'll make two points. One is that Rabbi Salavechik, who was actually uh, taught a lot about prayer and cared very deeply about it. He had his particular take on it. But he also, uh, Yom Kippur in particular, was a day that he had a tremendous feeling for. And uh, he, he several times offered a, the following perspective on, uh, on the air of Yom Kippur. I do remember that many years ago when my wife was in college, she had a friend who was a Jewish uh, young woman, but she knew absolutely nothing from nothing. She knew one thing about Yom Kippur. The only thing she knew was that before Yom Kippur, there's a big meal. She knew nothing else about it. And that's when I realized that for some Jews, the big thing is not Yom Kippur. It's actually this meal before Yom Kippur. It's astonishing to me. But what is this business of the meal before Yom Kippur? Because from the sources, it appears it's more than just you have to eat before Yom Kippur so you'll be able to fast on Yom Kippur. By the way, let me give you a good piece of advice about fasting on Yom Kippur that I learned about 10 years ago. Change your life. Chickpeas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Eat a lot of chickpeas in the meal before Yom Kippur. It's the easiest fasting. I, I fast well anyway. It's unbelievable. Chickpeas. I don't even like them, but believe me, 3 o'clock the next afternoon, you don't, it's easy. That's the, the, it's the most important thing you learn from me. Anyway, the point is, yeah, ch- chickpeas. What? Drink what? Uh, the Powerade, I can't speak to. But chickpeas, I can tell you, are good. And uh, we have always chickpeas, and it works. Now, 
Rabbi Sarovashik said the following. Here was his point. Because it appears from the Talmud, whoever eats on the Erev Yom Kippur is like fasting two days. Well, what is that about? He, 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 he had the following, he presented it in the following way, which I thought was very interesting. He said there are a couple of days on the calendar. He mentioned two, and I would add a third, where the day is very, the day is very complicated. Take, for example, Yom Kippur. The Torah says that on Yom Kippur you are to, to, you are to uh, afflict your soul, inui which the, the rabbis understand Inui in terms of not eating, but Inui actually, in Inui means to suffer. It's a day of suffering, Tanuat Nafshot Techem, which the rabbinic tradition limited to not eating and defined primarily as not, primarily as not eating. So, the point is that, on one hand, it's a day of eating. On the other hand, the Mishnah says in Masechet Tanit, there were two, the two happiest days on the calendar, says the Mishnah, were Yom Kippur, and uh, Tuba'av, the 15th day of Av. So the Gemara says, Bishalom, I understand Yom Kippur is so happy, it's a day of atonement. Of course it's the happiest. But what's so special about Tuba'av? But the Gemara takes for granted that Yom Kippur is a very happy day. And in fact, it is a happy day because on Yom Kippur, for example, if someone is in Avel before Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur comes, it's over. So Yom Kippur is a day of, in a certain sense, a day of Simcha because it stops the Avel. On the other hand, we have to we're told to eat Tanuat Nafshotechem and we're fasting. So Rabbi Salavechik said that actually the idea of celebrating Erev Yom Kippur is the special meal. Erev Yom Kippur is the meal in theory we should have on Yom Kippur. We should be, we should be rejoicing on Yom Kippur, but, but we're not allowed to. So therefore, the Erev Yom Kippur becomes, in a certain sense, a stand-in for the things we might have done on Yom Kippur. And he gave another example of that which I like very much, which is Purim. Because Purim, uh, Purim, we are, we are rejoicing. We have a special meal on Purim and we're happy and all that. But when you read the Megillah, the Megillah is a rather somber book and the Megillah is a frightening book. Because the point of the Megillah is that it is, um, you know, it's about a, in a kind of amoral world in which there's true evil and evil can run unchecked. And even though Haman is destroyed today, but there's another Haman. Amalek's always around. It's in every generation. So you finish the book and you say to yourself, okay, we survived this time, but next time, who knows? So that's the custom the Jewish people have. It's a custom. It's not mentioned in the Talmud at all. It's not one that's not listed as a... But the custom the Jewish people have is to fast Erev Purim. The day before Purim, we are fasting, even though that fast is not mentioned any place, by the way. It's not in the Talmud. It's just a custom. It's called Tani Dester. But that is the custom. And in Esther, in the Megillah, didn't fast the day before Purim. She fasted on Pesach, actually. So, but the Jewish people have a custom. And the idea is that we're fasting the day before Purim because really we should fast on Purim. But we can't. So therefore we're fasting the, before Purim. So that the day before Yom Kippur becomes, in a, in a certain sense, a stand-in for Yom Kippur. I would add to this that there's another day on the calendar where, in a sense, we do the same thing. And that's that's Rosh Hashanah. In Rosh Hashanah, we know that it's written down in many places. We know that there was a, a long-standing custom to fast on Rosh Hashanah. Many, many Jews fasted Rosh Hashanah for the simple reason it's the day of judgment. It's a, it's a frightening day, so you would fast. Over time, there was a whole dispute about Rosh Hashanah because on the other hand, it says it's a holiday. So the practice became widespread not to fast on Rosh Hashanah. On the other hand, there emerged another custom, 
which Jews, most Jews don't do today either, and that is to fast Erev Rosh Hashanah. The day after Rosh Hashanah is a widespread custom to fast. It's some Gedali, actually. I don't think it's a coincidence. The day after Rosh Hashanah is a fast day. But there was another custom to fast the Erev Rosh Hashanah. And not only that, the Srichot service, which the Ashkenazim start before Rosh Hashanah, the Saturday night, the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah, and recite them up to and including Yom Kippur, the two longest Srichot services, one is very long, in the Ashkenazic rite are Erev Rosh Hashanah, which is tremendously long, that's the longest by far, and second place is Tzom Gedalia. So the day after Rosh Hashanah and the day before Rosh Hashanah, we have the longest Srichot. And every day of a Sarity Mechuvah, we have Srichot. There's only two days we don't have Srichot. You know what that is? Rosh Hashanah itself. It's crazy, actually. You're starting before Rosh Hashanah, with the Sri, and the longest ones is before Rosh Hashanah, and Rosh Hashanah itself, you don't say them. So therein lies, in a way, one might make the same argument. The fasting, the crying, the special prayers, the penitential prayers, are appropriate for Rosh Hashanah. On the other hand, since it's a festive day, we don't, we don't do it. But then we move it off to both the day before Rosh Hashanah, for some, and the day after Rosh Hashanah. So we have a similar uh, approach, I would say, in Rosh Hashanah as well. So Yom Kippur and Purim Rosh Hashanah, we have this approach of having a day stand in for the holiday and those aspects of the holiday that would be very appropriate. But for whatever reason we don't do, that is... So that's one thing about the Erev Yom Kippur. Erev Yom Kippur is very special. Second point I wanted to make about, and I mentioned this last night, about the other custom that we have, which is, and many do this, is to say vidui just as, as Yom Kippur is entering. Just before Kol Nidre, there is a very common practice, very common, to say one of these confessionals as Yom Kippur is a beginning, and some of them are very beautiful. I very much recommend the one by the Ibn Ezra, which Ed Banai wrote a nice tune for and the idea, the Ramban talks about this, the idea is, the truth of the matter is that even the confession you say in Mincha, the, the, the Rambam, and actually the Gemara, the Rambam say a very strange thing, that we want to say, we want to say the confession before, before we eat, lest it says in, in rushing to eat, maybe we choke and won't be able to say the confession. The Rambam says maybe we might even die. Of course, the question is, if you died, who cares? That you wouldn't have to say the confession anyway. So that, that, right? So therefore, that's what Rabbi Salavetchik said. It means because the confession is appropriate to the era of Yom Kippur. But in any event, but the point is that fundamentally, you should we really say it just as Yom Kippur's beginning. And what I mentioned last night, that I heard from somebody, I liked it, is that the idea of confessing just as Yom Kippur is entering is making the following statement. This fellow said that one time, he and his wife wanted to go to couples therapy. So they went to a therapist, and the therapist said, what's, well, having many problems and many arguments and this and that. So, so the therapist said, I'll tell you what you do. Go home and work out all of your arguments. Solve all your arguments. And when you're finished, then we'll, then we'll start the therapy. I like, I like that very much. Right. So there, that's a very deep point, actually. The point is about, uh, it's about Yom Kippur. In other words, the confessions, you can see the confessions are, in a sense... Let's get rid of the obvious problems. Okay, we don't have problems. We're not fighting. But we're not in love either. You know what I mean? We're just not fighting. And the therapy is to not... That we shouldn't fight. Not that we should, you know, peaceful coexistence. The therapy is, presumably, is to figure out a way 
that we can deepen this relationship. And that's the point of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur actually is about the deep relationship. In the, in the Chumash, and I've spoken about this a hundred times, in the Chumash, of course, the, the, the day of Yom Kippur, every prayer, the main prayer days, have a biblical text that lies behind them. The main text for Yom Kippur is the golden calf. The, the Slichot are based on the story of the golden calf. And what's important to understand the golden calf story, as we read it in the book of Exodus anyway, when Moses goes up the mountain and God says to Moshe that the people have strayed, they made a golden calf, let me destroy them, I'll make you a nation. And the Torah says when Moshe was on the mountain, so Moses entreated God. He's a defense attorney. Why would you do such a thing? And after all, you made promises to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and they're your people, and I'm not interested in being a nation. Right? These are your people. And that section ends. So God relented, repented of the evil that God had thought to do to God's people. That's, and then the next verse says, so Moses turned and goes down the mountain. That's a very important point. In other words, the story of the golden calf begins after God says to Moshe, I'm not going to destroy them. But what is, the, what is at stake in the story of the golden calf? What is at stake is that when Moshe goes down the mountain holding these two tablets, the tablet of the covenant, and he sees what's going on, he breaks, he breaks these tablets. The breaking of the tablets is a momentous thing. And the reason it's so incredible is because when he breaks the tablets, the tablets are the work of God, it says. The tablets were the key vessel in the, put inside the ark, and the ark is the Mishkan. The ark is the space where God and people can be in the same place. So when Moses breaks the tablets, what is Moshe doing in effect? He's saying, we can't have a Mishkan. Because every other piece of the Mishkan, Betzalo and his crew can build it, or the wise, or the gifted people, whatever, but, but, the, the, but the tablets are irreplaceable. When Moshe breaks the tablets, in, in effect, God and Israel can never be together because there can't be a Mishkan. And then the work becomes to, to somehow to, to, to put things back together again. At that point, God said to Moshe, tell the people, they'll go into the land, they'll send my angel, they'll capture the land, milk and honey, but I, but I can't go with you. Because I'll destroy you. If we're, if we're together, we're gonna, I'm going to kill you. So therefore, so one second. And then begins the people mourn. That, that's the process. The, the, what are they mourning? The absence of the Mishkan. In other words, the, the, the story of the golden calf, at least in the book of Exodus, is not about survival. Survival is assured from day one. The people will survive, says God. I'm not going to destroy them. The issue is not survival. The issue is after the golden calf, can you ever get that? Can you ever have a Mishkan? Can you ever have a place where God and people can share a space? And the, the happy ending of the book of Exodus, through Moses' intercession, the people's repentance, and God's accommodation as well, God's self-limitation, to come with us as only as the merciful God, or essentially as the merciful God, Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum V'chanun. That's what Yom Kippur is about. It's about this, we're searching for a way that we can be together with God in, in, in a very intimate way. That, that's the search. In which in the Torah takes the form of the Mishkan. So it's not about survival. Survival is, go home, go home and make sure you're not, not going to kill each other. Okay, fine. That's taken care of. Now the question is, okay, we're not going to kill each other. We even maybe like each other. You know what I mean? We talk, okay, and now we, 
where do we take all this? And that's what Yom Kippur is about. Yom Kippur is about working it through so that we can then build the Mishkan. Of course, on the calendar, the holiday after Yom Kippur is the holiday of the, of the Mishkan. We call it Tabernacles. Sukkot. Sukkot is Tabernacles. It is Tabernacles. Sukkot is the Mishkan, actually. Yom Kippur makes the Mishkan possible. So that's the idea of confessing anyway, just before Yom Kippur. We're going we're gonna to enumerate the sins, we're going to take, take care of that stuff. And now we begin, now, and now we begin Yom Kippur. And then the hard work actually begins. What do you want to say? Mishkan. Mishkan is the temple. The portable temple of the desert. The word Shachain. Shachain is one who dwells. The place of indwelling. And that's the book of Exodus, of course. The goal of the book of Exodus, at least the plain reading of the book would suggest, that the goal of Exodus is to move from slavery to a place of freedom, but also to be able to construct a space where God and people can share a space. The book of Exodus actually is all about building. I mean, the truth is it starts with building and ends with building. It starts with working for Pharaoh. You build the store cities for Pharaoh. And the book of Exodus concludes with the people building this space we call the Mishkan, tabernacle in English or whatever, um, portable temple. That's how the book actually does end. It's a glorious book, but there are many bumps along the way. The main bump being the golden calf. And the golden calf and, and the response of Moses and God's response to Moshe, which is to teach Moses something about God. A formula, it's more than just a formula, it's a statement about God the God to whom we are appealing. And Moses appeals, God, Rachum V'chanun, that is the, re, we, we are reiterating that, those verses, Hashem Hashem Ker Rachum V'chanun, that is the core prayer, together with the confessions, the core prayer of, uh, of Yom Kippur. We call them Srichot. Yes? How do, you, how do you think about um, our contemporary lives where we don't have the Mishkan, but we don't I think there are many spaces, but let me say two things about that. About, I mean, we are praying fervently, as one of my friends said many years ago in Musaf, we are praying fervently for the rebuilding of the temple that, uh, that uh, none of us want. Um, <laughs> so the Reformed Jews said, scrap it, basically. Don't say it, you know what I mean? Some Orthodox Jews, some, say, well, we'll say it, because we want to, but we think of it as a kind of metaphor kind of, you know, it's a metaphor. It's an allegory or a metaphor. But I like what my wife said to me a couple of years ago. I think it's true. And that is, it's not actually a metaphor. It's different. It's actually a myth. And there's a difference between a myth and, a, and, 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 and an allegory. And that is, well, this is what most of us are incapable of. I mean, forget it. But this is what it actually... In other words, that when you actually... When you, pray for the temple in the synagogue, you're actually praying for the temple. You're entering into a mythic, it's a mythic, different consciousness. In that moment, you actually pray for, you enter into a mythic. And then the question is, when you, having entered this world, this mythic world, then the question is, when you come out of the myth, the question is, when you come out of it, actually, how does that impact your life? But it's, it's, it's putting yourself in a different place. It's, 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 a, it's a different... It's, 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 it's a different, I would say, different consciousness altogether. And that's true not just of prayer. In other words, it's true of 
Well, in other words, Malafa Malka. You go to Malafa Malka after Shabbat. In the Malafa Malka, there are people that are present at the Malafa Malka. The prophet Elijah is at the Malafa Malka. King David is at the Malafa Malka. Jacob is there. Tira Avdi Yaakov. Now, for the so-called modern Orthodox Jew and everybody to the left, that's that's they're not really there. Wrong. They are there. Because you grow up. They're actually there. And the, the sense that Yaakov is actually there. Now that is, you know, how do you put yourself in that mode? Of course, when you leave the mode, you, of course, he's not actually there. But for that time, he's actually there. That I would say is entering a mythic world. And that's the world of prayer. And then it's a completely different experience, of course. Allegories are very, un, very unsatisfying. At the, at, at the moment, you're actually you're, you're, you're assuming a different character, and that is that is the key to prayer. And that's actually we don't have that. Some of the European Jews had it. The American Jews and the Israelis forget about it. They have no clue what I'm mostly even talking about. Some of you you feel. Some of you have to grow up with it and feel it, and then it's a totally different prayer. It's a totally different prayer. So that is about in terms of praying for the temple. Now, your question, what is, what is our sacred space? That's a very good question. Sacred space to me is about, first of all, it's about, it's not just, it, I mean, let me say two things about sacred space. I mentioned this last night, which is very important. The, the Hasidic masters, what they've done, essentially, with the entire tradition, is they have asked the question, how does it speak to me? And everything we are studying is about myself. In other words, it becomes, it becomes about me. Um, I'm even something like Amalek, this, this wicked, for the great Hasidic masters, it's about the Amalek inside myself, okay? And those influenced by the Hasidic teachings, and there are many different people influenced by them, talk in those terms. When you go out and against your enemy, the Hasidic masters will say, well, that's, who's the enemy? The enemy's inside me. And they'll talk in those terms. There is a great danger in this, however. We've got to be careful with it, because if it all becomes about myself, then it ceases to be about the kind of external real world. The danger is that we see it only in terms of ourselves. I mentioned last night, there's one, I have a friend of mine here on the west side who I have a lot of respect for, who never makes that mistake. He always says, and I've heard it many times, yes, it's about ourselves, but it's also, there's a real world out there. That's my friend Rowie Madelon. Always says this, whether it's Kyrgyz here or not, he says it all the time. It's not just about me, because that's the danger. That's the danger of, of, of the land of Israel, it's very dangerous. Rav Nachman, he travels to Israel, and when he gets there, he comes home. Because it's not actually about Israel. It's about Israel Shalmala. Very dangerous. Because there is a real world out there with real problems. It's not just about myself. That lapses into solipsism. Very dangerous. So the point is, sacred space, yes, we, we could talk about ourselves, the, sp- the holy spaces within ourselves, connecting to ourselves and all that, but I don't think that's the right approach. I think that's a piece of it. The question is, how do we create... Uh, Sacred, sacred communities. That's that's the question, and that asked, that that's a very important question. What are the elements of sacred community? Sacred community has many pieces in our tradition. 
One is one is creating a space where everybody has a place. That's, that's the first thing. That's very important. That my my place doesn't take away from you. On the contrary, the fact that I have a place means that I, I make I make space for the next person. That's one. And then the, basically the, the values that we have, whether it's a place which it's moving people forward, whether it's intellectually, whether it's spiritually, whether it's opportunities to serve. You know, every community has got to figure out what are the values that we believe in. And then these institutions that we are building, do they reflect these values or not? I mean, it's, it's never perfect, but most times it's very imperfect, actually, that the institutions in no way really reflect the values, deep values that we in our soul know are right. They don't reflect it. So that's the work that we have in terms of sacred space. I think that's very important, creating institutions, communities, etc., that are reflecting the best part of ourselves. So that's, that's I think, as a, as a larger Jewish community, and it's not just for Jews. Every, every community should be thinking in these terms. So in any event, that is not so simple. You know what I mean? And in our tradition, we would draw upon the pieces of our tradition as we understand it to put into place these kinds of communities. That's, that's the best I can say. I mean, it's easy to say many things. To do it is not so simple. In any event... This is what Yom Kippur, I think, is about. Yom Kippur is about figuring out how we can build the, the uh, sacred community. And I'll tell you something else that many, and the custom that this you won't find on the west side of Manhattan or the east either. But here's, I remember when I was in Israel, in Alonjo, after Yom Kippur is over, you hear a lot of noise. You know why? Everybody's building their sukkah. You know that? Right after Yom Kippur, you eat something, you build your sukkah. And that's very important. Because the sukkah, of course, it represents the community. And it means that, okay, as I said many times, the most important day is not Yom Kippur. It's the day after Yom Kippur. Okay, what, did we dis- what kind of commitments do we make and do we act upon them? Often we have many commitments and we don't really act upon them. The time to act is right away because we forget. So that's important. The question is what we take Yom Kippur with us to build this community, which will be represented by Sukkot, but it doesn't, it's not limited to Sukkot, obviously. In any event, these are two of the customs that we have. And then we have another custom that I did speak about last night, which is a universal, universal, universal custom. And that is, it's strange. And we take these things for granted, but they're so weird. Here's the one that's really weird, which is that before Yom Kippur starts, we are gathering together solemnly in the synagogue and reciting a formula, which is the nullification of the vows that we made the previous year, which we call, call the, the, the Kol Nidre service. And that is a universal custom, just about universal. There were some communities that objected to Kol Nidre on various grounds. And I remember talking to was, um, a reform rabbi. I was talking to her about the... Uh, she said, you know, here's the thing about Kol Nidre, you know. She said... She was telling the other rabbis there. She said, if you don't want to say Kulnidri, that's okay, she said. But if you say it, you better chant it properly. You know what I mean? Which is very true. You, know what I mean? you better sing the right tune for it. Because that you can't. The point is, there's something about Kulnidri, which is very powerful. Although if you ask people, what is so powerful about Kulnidri? It's a formula which we know the vows that we made in the previous year. Why is this significant? So... My suggestion, I'm going to mention this briefly because I spoke about it last night and many times, is that the point of Kol Nidre, the point of Kol Nidre is exactly this idea of nullification of vows. 
Because anybody who ever studied the Bible knows very well that in the Bible you can't nullify vows. There's no such thing in the Bible. On the contrary, it's clear from the reading of the Tanakh that if you take a vow, by vow I mean a vow or an oath, there's no way out of it. If, if you swear you're going to do something, that's it. You have to do it. It's like when Jacob says to Joseph, I want you to bury me back in the land of Canaan. I will do as you say, Father. And what does Yaakov say? He shavali, swear. Or Jacob himself, when his brother Esau comes back very tired and he wants the birthright, he says, give me that, some of that red stuff you're eating. Sell me your birthright. Who cares about birthrights? Swear you'll do it. Because once you swear, that's it. There's no way out of it. So the idea of the oath, and many examples, many, many examples of it, that's not a knowing of vows. That is true, but that's not, that's as if the vow never gets off the ground to begin with. That, that's the point. That's true, that the woman who is actually, the Chiddush over there, I would say, is the opposite. The Chiddush is the other way around. The Chiddush is that the husband or the father doesn't right away stop it. Actually, he can't stop it afterwards. That's actually the Torah, the big Chiddush, that women can actually make all kinds of commitments. And unless the husband stops it dead in its tracks, it has a life of its own, and he can't, he can't stop it. That's probably the Chiddush and the Chumash. But the fact of the matter is that there's no such thing as simply the abrogation of vows. Comes along the, the rabbinic tradition and says, oh, not so, that the people and the court act, you can go to the court and say that I, took a, I made a commitment, I took a vow, I took an oath, but had I known the consequences, I would never have done it. And the court can then say to you, we are, we are, your, your, your oath has been uh, nullified, and the language is, and you are, and, and you are forgiven. Benislach, and you are forgiven. Slicha. So the point is, not just that the, the, vow, the nullification of vows represents the idea that we can, we can think about the last year when we made some mistakes, and we... Uh, we have a way out of it, but it's much more than that. It's that you have a way to overturn what it represents, as we start Yom Kippur, is that the human being has a way to overturn something, even imposed in God's name. One might say we, we, we have the ability, we claim, as we start Yom Kippur, to overturn God's word. And, in fact, in fact, and that's what we say right after Kol Nidre, V'nisrach, we said two verses, we quote the verse from Bamidbar, chapter 15, which means in, in context, it shall be forgiven. If all the people sin, it shall be forgiven for the people who have sinned unwittingly. But for the Kol Nidre service, it means something different. For the Kol Nidre service, is not the passive voice. It's not it shall be forgiven. But is said by this little court of three. It means we forgive. We forgive, says the court. The Nisrach, we forgive. We have determined that the people have sinned unwittingly. And then the Chazan says, quotes a verse from Bamidbar chapter 14, after the story of the spies, where Moshe said to God, forgive the people. And God's answer is, I forgive as you say. But for the Kol Nidre service, it has a different meaning. It means the court stands up and says, we are forgiving the sins. And God says, I agree. And the point of that is, as we start Yom Kippur, 
one of the awesome moments of Yom Kippur, the message is very clear. That forgiveness, we claim, as we start Yom Kippur, depends upon us. If we do it, if we do the proper, make the proper commitments and decisions, you're forgiven. If you fail to do so, you won't be forgiven. It's not, that, it's not at that moment simply an act of grace that God can choose to forgive anybody. But the, it's, actually up, it's actually up to you. That is a deeply Jewish idea. At the end of the day, okay, maybe we still need God's help. But at the end of the day, we have both the ability to transform ourselves and we have the, and we have the power. In other words, not just to, to make the effort, but to achieve, a, to end up in a very good place thanks to our own efforts. But on the other hand, it puts an enormous responsibility upon us. If, if, if someone else is going to bail you out, that's one thing. But if you have to bail yourself out, so we have appointed the court to represent us, and we're making a statement as Yom Kippur, which is, guys, it's, it's going to be up to you. Whether you fail or succeed, don't blame anybody else. It's all, it's all, you have the ability. On the other hand, it's not easy. And God will agree if you do it. And I would just say in terms of last week, Rosh Hashanah is all about God. Rosh Hashanah is about reading verses from the Bible. Rosh Hashanah is a day of God's kingship. Rosh Hashanah is the statement that we live in God's world. It's not about me. I'm, a, I'm God's servant or aspire to be God's servant. But it's, it's, I'm living in God's space. And therefore the service of Rosh Hashanah is all verses. It's verses from God's Bible. It's not... Yom Kippur is different. And Yom Kippur is studying Yom Kippur with the quintessential rabbinic idea, which is Hatarat Nadarim. As the Mishnah says, Hetar Nadarim Porchin Ba'avir, the Mishnah Chagiga. The right to annul vows, Porchin Ba'avir, floats in the air. And there's no basis for it. It's a rabbinic understanding which speaks to human possibility. And that's how you start. Yom Kippur is all about us. Yom Kippur, in a certain sense, is much easier than Rosh Hashanah. Yom Hashanah is very hard for us. Yom Kippur is very simple. I'm not saying it's easy to do it. But to understand it is very simple. It speaks to exactly where we are, which is it's about us, but, it, it, but it's put in terms of responsibility. So that's an additional practice or custom, that fairly universal one, to begin uh, Yom Kippur with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Kol Nidre, with, with this nullification of, of, of vows which I would say conceptually is making a big statement about the, about the, the opportunity that we have to, to, make a, to, to make a difference. That's how you start Yom Kippur. Now, let me, in the time that we have, I will speak of other simply key points about the Yom Kippur service that may or may not be obvious. Let me start with the following. Oh, wait, let me say something about the slicha that I actually didn't say last night. I don't, those few people who were here last night, I don't want to repeat. The slichot service, of course, is like this. The slichot service consists primarily of the re- repetition of the so-called God's attributes. Hashem, Hashem, Kelrachum, V'chanun, Erech, Apayim, the God is the, the merciful God, the forgiving God, the merciful God, the long-suffering God. And this formula that appears in Exodus chapter 34 appears in, in varied forms many other places throughout the Bible. I forget the exact number, eight or ten or whatever. One of which is in the story of the, of the, of, of the spies. The Moshe appeals, God again threatens to destroy all of us, and Moshe again appeals to God. But Moshe changes the formula. He leaves out, for example, Rachum v'chanun. He changes it. He adjusts it. He changes it. But fundamentally, that's the formula. 
in the classical Machzor, Vayomer Hashem Sarachti Kidvarecha was the response to Moshe's appeal to God after the spy episode. Well, Moshe invoked the 13 attributes there as well. Maybe they're not exactly 13, but in any event, and we are, so, so we are saying Srichot are recited on Yom Kippur. Now, as I did mention last night, in the classical, real classical prayer book, Srichot are, are recited in each of the five Yom Kippur prayers. What's interesting, by the way, is you, in leaving Yom Kippur for a moment and thinking about the prayer service, okay? It's, this is very instructive. Srichot is like this. First of all, the Srichot service of Yom Kippur are only recited in the, in the repetition of the Amidah. It's public, not privately. They're not Srichot privately. They are a, a communal prayer, and they are recited in the repetition of the Shemona Esrei. So the way it works is, it starts with something like Slachwanu Ravinu, you know, forgive us, and then there's a paragraph, and then we have the attributes of mercy, then another paragraph, and again the attributes, and another paragraph, and then we have the conclusion. At the conclusion, it concludes with something like, God, remember us, which leads up to Shema Koleinu. Shema Koleinu, if you have a machzor, you say Shema Koleinu is the end, in a way, the end of, right, the end of, these, of the, of the Srichot service. We're saying, hearken to our voice. Everything that we said and things we didn't say, hear our voice, hear our inner voice, right? Restore us, hashiveinu. Don't, don't cast us aside. Right. That's the structure of the Srichot service. So what happened? And it was in all, all the five prayers. What happened was that for any number of reasons, the printers decided to take Srichot out of most of the, of the, uh, of the, of the Machzorim. Some, of, some still have it. Like this is Adler. Adler has the Srichot in them. But if you say, okay, Birnbaum or other such uh, Machzorim, they don't have them. And the synagogues, for the most part, 98% of them, have cut Srichot out of Shachrit, out of Musaf, and out of Mincha. But, since the one who cut it out was the, was the printer, and the printers didn't necessarily have the greatest knowledge or anything like that, they cut it out in the uh, wrong place. Because if you open up any one of these machzorim, what you will see is, let me just explain. This is very interesting about how these, it says a lot about, about people and about community, and it's not a pretty picture, actually. I mean, it's... it's you see, the way it works is what introduces the slichot is always in the in the, in the is what when you say this prayer, it always introduces slichot. The prayer is Yalav Yavo. So after Yalav Yavo, for any number of reasons, you start slichot. The Chazan says Yalav Yavo, which is the classical prayer for every festival. It ends Kelmel Chanun Varachum Ata, and then you start with slichot. So that, for example, in the Ilo, when there is slichot, in the Ilo, that's all you have basically. After Yalav Yavo. The Chazan says, "Petachu anushar, petachu anushar, be'ed ne'ilat shar kifan." The day is leaving. Open up the gates, and we say, "Kel melech Hashem Hashem kel rachum b'chanan." Something like thirteen times actually in the classical set. What happened was so, but in most machzorim, they chopped out the slichot. So what do you have after Yavo v'Yavo? Remarkably, in most of the machzorim, if you remember. Next paragraph is Zechor Rachamecha Hashem, which leads you up to what? Shema Koreinu. 
So the ignorance is astounding. That, that, that's not so astounding. Shmakaleinu is the end. It's like, it's like Shmakaleinu is the end. See, the Shrikot are based essentially upon the, upon the Shmon Esrei. Shmakaleinu is the last blessing of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the last petition you make. After all your requests, you say to God, Shmakaleinu, hear our voice, which means everything we said before except, and, and stuff we didn't say too. Hear our voice, hear our, our deepest desires. Shmakaleinu. Or everything we're asking for, hear our voice and hear the things that we should be asking for, which is m- more important, and discard the things that are no good for us. You know what I mean? But the point is, 90% of what we ask for is bad for us. You know that, right? You're praying so much, oh, and, but at the end of the day, if you, you thank God, God didn't answer me. You know what I mean? Because that, that's, that's what it is, right? Right. Anyway, that's the, that's the way it is. So that's actually an interesting problem about prayer. What about the fact that we don't even know what what, what to pray for in the, in the first place. That's very interesting. This whole tractate devoted to that in the Talmud, that's the main point. Do you really know what you, what you want? That's the question. You think you do, do you really know? In any event, Shmakoleinu is the end of Srichot. So what does it mean to chop out the Srichot, but Sechorachamecha and Shmakoleinu makes no sense. And what's actually very interesting is, and frightening, is okay, the printers we don't blame. But the communities, the leadership, the rabbis, very... They just kept it the way it is, even though it makes zero sense. So, so the, 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 the purists, of course, couldn't accept it. Rabbi Salavetsky couldn't accept it, so he put Srikot in. And, of course, the places that have real traditional prayer, the German Jews or whatever, you open, they, they, they say everything. They never change anything, you know? So the point is, but what does it mean to say that we're saying a service which is, makes no sense, actually? Shmakoleinu, without saying Shmakoleinu, you haven't said anything. What? what, what what are, you, what are you requesting? Shvakoleinu is after this Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun. After we're petitioning for God's mercies, we say Shvakoleinu. No, but we which previous service? No, 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 no. We we chopped them out. No, the E was fine. The E we say Slichov. I'm talking about three of the five services. The way the classical, the way the normal sitter works, okay? Normal congregations that say slichot, that they say them only twice on Yom Kippur. They say them at night, kol nidre night, and they say them in the ilu. In the ilu, everybody says slichot. There's nothing else to say in the ilu. It's only, there's always slichot in the ilu. There's no, nothing else. So in those two services, every, everybody who has a traditional service is saying slichot in those services. The other three services, which are mincha and shacharit, shacharit, musaf and mincha, They've been chopped out in the way that I described, which is to chop out the slichot, but to retain shmakoleinu, which makes, it makes no sense. And it's, it says a lot about the mentality that if it's written in a book, you say it. This is the mentality. This one's very frightening, actually, which is why we can't get rid of anything, basically. Because once it's written down, everything keeps getting, you're always adding, and you're never subtracting. It, that's a different problem with prayer some other time. It's just too many words, you know? Too many words, so... We don't, we don't keep it simple. It's too, too complex. Too many words. There's a place for words as well, but there's so many of them. In any event, so we have this. Now, this is the Slichot service. Now, let's take a look briefly at one of the great moments of Yom Kippur, of which there are many, which is Konidre night. What is the service? What I'm saying is so basic, but unfortunately, it has to be said. It's like this. Here's Konidre night you have the following. First is Kol Nidre, which is this formulaic annulling of the vows, which has, as I said, great significance. 
Then there's a st- standard Mari of service, like every holiday. You say the Shema with its blessings, you say the Shema on Esrei, and the Shema on Esrei, you say the V, doing fine. Then what? That's over. Now what? So after Mariv on, Kon- on the night of Konidre, we say Slichot. We say Slichot. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. And the Slichot, typically in the Ashkenazic rite, there are four, essentially, they're introduced, what I'm not going to get to now, by a very beautiful poem, that God should accept our prayers from the night. And then we are saying three, three poems surrounded by the attributes of God's mercy. The first of which, in this particular, if we have the same machsa or not, the first of which is starts on, in this, in this it starts on page 36, it, it's an acrostic. It begins with the word slachna. See, it's acrostic, alphabet, it's an alphabetical order. It, and then the, the tagline is slachna, God forgive Ashemotu Pishelu Mech, and the Adlamach was page 36. It's after, it's a little bit after we, the introduction to Slichot, okay? And after we say that, of course we say, Hashem Hashem Kerachon Vachanon, and then you have on page 38 the second poem, Omnom Kain, also an acrostic, Alephet. The tagline there is the word Salachti. So the first one has the, starts with Slachna. The second one is the, the tagline is Salachti. And the third, which is the main poem for Kol Nidre Night, Kihine Kachomer Biyad HaYotzer. Right? That we are as clay, as the potter is molding clay. Right? The Yotzer is forming something from the clay. We are, we say to God, it's a verse in, in Yermio. Go down to the house of the potter, God says to Yermio. Potter is molding something, and then the, the poet takes this image of the potter molding something. We are in God's hands, and then continues with Evan Beadamasatet, the mason, the smith, the seaman, okay, etc. Okay, I'm not crazy about the translation over here, but this is the main. This is the, every of the Slichot service that has a main poem. This is the main poem, the main one. And what's interesting is. I'll make several points about these poems. First of all, what is clear is that the composition in this rite, this composition, is actually playing off typically biblical verses. In this case, if you think of the first two, the first one begins with the word slachna, and the second one, the tag one, is salachti. And what that plays off is what we said right after Kol Nidre. Moses appeals to God after the story of the spies, the Miraglim. Forgive God according to your great mercies. What was God's answer? I forgive as you say. So Slachna was Moses' request. Salachti was God's answer. And Moses was appealing to God through the mentioning of these attributes of mercy. So the so the, the Ashkenazic rite actually takes that conversation and builds around that conversation these two poems. Of course, after each poem, you say Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun. But what is the third one? The third one, Chihine Kachomer. We are as clay in, in God's hands. Okay. 
And by the way, we don't necessarily look for theological consistency within these poems. In other words, the point that I was making about Kol Nidre is it's a statement about human possibility. Kihine Kachomer is saying something very different, which is we are as clay in God's hands. We're, we're asking God to... It's one of, remember, one of Dunn's religious poems. So they mold me, shape me. It's very powerful. In other words, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in your hands. God... Bend me according to your will. I'm here to do God's will. And the tagline for this one is, Look at the covenant. What's interesting is that the way it begins. It's a very strange, I would say, awkward Hebrew uh, phrase. What's kihine kachomer? What's kihine? Hine kachomer. What is kihine kachomer? But what it's actually doing, I believe, is playing off a different biblical verse. And the biblical verse is found when Moshe appeals to God after God is revealing to Moses the attributes of mercy. God said to Moshe said to God, let's find the, the verse. It's, I think chapter thirty four of Exodus. I believe it's 34. Yeah, so let's see. Yes. God reveals to Moses the attributes of mercy. Exodus chapter 34, page 188 in this translation, verse number 6, 5 and 6 and 7. Vayimaher Moshe. When Moses heard these words from God, Moses hurried and bowed down. Vayomer. God, if I find favor in your eyes, Walk, walk in our midst. That was Moses' request. Be in our midst. Be in our presence. That's the Mishkan. Why? For they are a stiff-necked people. The question is, first of all, what does the word key mean? What does key mean? There are two possibilities. You see different translations say different things. What does JPS say? Even though, right? JPS has even though. <coughs> JPS is bothered. What do you mean walk in our midst because they're stiff-necked? That was the reason God said God couldn't walk in our midst because they're stiff-necked, right? I'll destroy you. So what is Moses saying? Walk in our midst because this key. So the JPS translates even though, and others have, others have translated the same way. The other translations though say key because, which I believe is correct, better in this case. What Moshe is saying is the following. In other words, God, if you walk with us in, the, in your full aspect, in your totality of what you are, you're right. We'll sin in, inevitably and, you, and you'll destroy us. That's not going to work. But I have a different request. Now that you have revealed God to us in this aspect of, 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 of God's mercies, in that aspect, you have to go with us. Why? because we are stiff-necked and stubborn. And therefore, we're due to sin. And therefore, that's why we need you. We need your forgiving presence in order to survive. then would mean because. Because we're so stiff-necked, stubborn, and unbending, we need your presence. And what is God's answer to Moshe? God's answer is, Vayomer. And God answered to Moshe, Hinei anochi behold, I make a covenant. Now, first of all, 
Moses, that's the kihine, kihine, ki was Moses' comment. Kiyam kshayorefu, God's answer. Hine onochi korait brit, I make a covenant. The truth is, the covenant that God is referring to, as the Ramban says, probably means I am restoring the covenant of Sinai. But the Talmud had a different Midrashic explanation of which is, I make a covenant about me, says God, and about my mercies, and about this formula, about what I just taught you, of Hashem Hashem Kerachim V'chanun, that there's a covenant about these Midot. The Yudhimu Midot are a promise that when you get in trouble, you can always call up these attributes of mercy. You can always appeal to this aspect of me, and there's a chance that I will respond. So the, the poet, that's the third pismon. That's ki hinei kachomer. And the tagline, labrit ha-beit, exactly, ki am kshayorefu, hinei anochi koreit brit. In other words, the, uh, and this is very often this way, that the poem is recalling for us the biblical text. And it's not just the clever words over here, it's a different point, which is actually a very important point about Yom Kippur. And here is something that for sure has been lost in our, in our various communities. Lost. This, part of it is that we, that we don't say the slichot. If one, one could ask the question, what is the value of saying these various penitential prayers? They're very hard to understand very often. Especially the Ashkenazic one is difficult. That's to be studied. But what the slichot actually accomplish, if one studies them, is they give us an insight into the prayers of Yom Kippur. Because the way people think of Yom Kippur is it's a very long day. Have an easy fast, they say. Let me tell you the truth. I usually don't even remember that I'm fasting Yom Kippur. I just, it's, it's, it's actually a non-event. And I have my, uh, my, uh, my uh, chickpeas also, so I don't worry. But <laughs> I never I have an easy fast. I don't say anything, but what? what? Fast is small, irrelevant, actually. It's not about the fast. Sometimes it's hard to fast and it gets in the way. That's a problem. But it's not about the fast. The point of Yom Kippur is people think of it as a very long day, which it can be, and it's davening the whole day. But what they don't pick up on is this, that the five prayers of Yom Kippur are all very different. There are five different moods. There are five different themes. You're, you're moving from one to the next. They're totally different. And the truth is that the Slichot actually pick this up. The slichot you say in the morning are not the slichot you say at night. The night of Yom Kippur is one kind of a mood. There's a deep serenity. I, the Yom Kippur night reminds me actually of, a, of, a, of a Christmas, actually. There's something peaceful about it. There's something... That, that's, that, that's what this pismone is actually saying. The Jews don't have this, by the way. We Jews don't, don't, don't have serenity. The Christians have serenity. Jews have no serenity. But Konidre night is, is, is this way. Because, you know what's made very comforting? It's like, when I walk into Shul Yom Kippur morning, I feel great. You know why? There's nothing to think about. You're here. This is it. I'm, the next 12 hours or whatever it is, I'm just davening. That's a world. It is. All the problems. I got my own problems in the next 12 hours. And basically, I'm here to daven. And the truth is that that's the pismon. We are in God's hands. And that's a very comforting thought, actually. Because nothing to, we are in your hands. That, that's, that's the main, that's the, the whole feeling for the night of Yom Kippur. It's about the covenant. It's about promises of, and, and there's something very serene, something very peaceful about Kondidre night.
and about the slichot and kolnejer. It's very, very beautiful. They're so beautiful. They're so pristine. The day is just beginning. And it's different than the morning. In the morning, if you read the slichot of the morning, they're different. The, the, those who say slichot, the few Jews who say it, the main slichot of the Ashkenazim, Yom Kippur morning, Shofet Kora Aretz, judge of the world, Fiotab Mishpat Yamid, and the tagline, Olat HaBoker, Shavu Yolat HaTamid. That's a totally different feeling, which is, here we are in the morning, and we are engaging in our practice of praying every morning. Tamid, the idea of it's, we're continuing, but there's something different about it. Because the morning isn't just about what you do every morning. This is a, it's a day of judgment. Yom Kippur is a day of judgment. Not only Rosh Hashanah. See, see, it's, it's, we say Yom Hadin, Yom Kippur is a day of judgment. The morning, Slichot picked that up. And it's a completely different, there is a crispness to it, there is a freshness to it. You're starting out with certain expectations, but there's also the judgment. Musaf is another story, completely different, Musaf. Musaf is, what is the slich of, of Musaf? The Ashkenazics, I don't expect you to know it, but I'll tell you what it is. Im Yosfi Manachno. Musaf is a different theme. Musaf, of course, is, has, the, has the great prayers of, you know, it has the vidui, it has the reenactment of the service of the high priest. And in the Musaf slicha, it makes a different point, which is this. Because the Musaf, in general, is dedicated to the, uh, to the, to the temple rites. The Musaf is the reenactment of the temple service. And the Slicha picks up the following problem. The key service of Yom Kippur in the Torah is this detailed service of the high priest. The, the incense in the Holy of Holies, the sacrifice of the people, the blood sprinkled on the Holy of Holies, Aaron's sacrifice, the people's sacrifice, and then the scapegoat sent out into the desert, bearing all of the sins and the confessions. And the Mishnah actually, which is the basis for the Avod of Yom Kippur, tries to sort out for us three different things. It's very complicated because you have the everyday service in the temple, then you have the service of the festivals, the Musaf, and then on top of all that, you have this complicated section that we read on Yom Kippur morning of the Avod the of, the, of, the, of, the, of the Kohen Gadol with the incense and the goat and his own. And the sp- How do you organize these three things? That's the question. That's what the Mishnah in Tractate Yoma tries to do. And that's what the avoda and the various avodot that are composed also try to do. The earliest ones, the ancient, go back to the Mishnah. The earliest ones read just like the Mishnah, actually. The later ones, the Ashkenazim, are those who say the avoda. The Ashkenazim, the poem, which is written, it's a, it's a medieval composition. It starts with the words, Amitz Koach. In my view, it's the greatest piece of poetry we have in our entire tradition. It is beyond belief that the language is very difficult. Both in terms, I mean, the, the actually the, the, both the, the, the economy of language there. She says, describes, because it starts with creation, describing all of creation in a few words. It's beyond belief. And the description of the, of course, the, the, very, the description of the service, which has all kinds of subtleties to it because there's a disag- many disagreements about the service. This poet takes a position on all these things, a great scholar. And then the description of what happens when the high priest finishes the service. You've got to read this to believe it. It is be- so beautiful. It's beyond belief. The Hebrew is astonishing, actually. But even in the English, the entire universe is rejoicing. It is beyond. I mean, it's just beyond. So 
the, but the slichus of afterwards we say slichus because this is when we had a service, but now we have no temple, and then we say slichot because after all in the Torah Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'Chanun was was is found in the Torah when Moses and the people are saying to God we have to we have to be we have to get back together, which, which takes the form in the Torah of the Mishkan. So now that we say we have no temple, we have no service, we have no high priest, we have no Mishkan, this inaugurates for us the slichot service. And the main slicha for the Ashkenazic rite, or sort of, let's say, one of the main, because different communities had different customs, im yosvi manachnu. Im yosvi manachnu, if we continue, we, we continue to stand before God. The Muslim is the additional service. And the, the slicha has one main concern, which is, okay, when we had a temple, we got it. We had a temple, we brought sacrifices, and we were forgiven. But now we have no temple. So the Slicha asked the question, what for us is the temple service? And it goes through six or seven different possibilities as to what for us could replace the temple service. Is it our prayers? Is it our fasting? Is it our repentance? It goes on through different possibilities. Uh, is it our charity? What, what, what is it? That for us, how can we, to ask about how can we build a sacred space? How can we, for us, what, what actually speaks to us in our situation? I mean, everybody's different, obviously. But the point is, what for us as individuals and community, how can we maintain or retain the idea of, of the sacred space? How can, we, how can we achieve forgiveness, atonement? What do we have to do? In a way, it's a lot easier when you have some kind of objective service. You have the scapegoat, you have to send out the scapegoat and all that stuff. Okay, fine. But we have no scapegoats. And we have no high priest. And we have no holy of holies. So for us, what is the holy of holies? Is it, our, is it our prayers? Is it our commitments? What, what is it exactly? And that's what the slicha actually deals with. If you read it, you'll see for yourself. Im yosfi manachnu. That's Musaf. And then you get to Mincha. Awesome prayer. Mincha is overlooked. Mincha is different. Totally different feeling to Mincha. Which has to do with... Has to do with human imperfection, actually. Mincha. It's, Mincha is a prayer that in the tradition is identified with our patriarch Yitzchak. Yitzchak represents, in, in, certainly in, 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 many, uh, in many of the teachings of the Hasidic masters, and I think even more mainstream Judaism, represents the idea of human insufficiency. Mincha is, these, the, Mincha is you, you, you're praying again. Even though you prayed in the morning, you're praying a second time because because you didn't get it right the first time. And that's, the mincha is about, not, it, mincha is an appeal to God to look at us as basically impoverished people. We, 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 we don't have that much to bring to the table. Nonetheless, we're still God's creation. And we appeal in that way. And it's a, it, it, it relies upon not so much deeds, but more about, upon faith. The slicha for, for the maminim b'nei maminim. This is the slicha for maminim b'nei maminim. It's completely different. It has a totally different feel. I love Mincha Yom Kippur. It's a totally different feel. And then Ila. Gates are closing. After all we did, the gates are closing. How can, we, how can we somehow find ourselves in a good place? And we, you know, there's the, this, the sense of desperation, which maybe we should have all the time, you know, but we don't have it. The gates are closing, the sun is setting. Open up the gates, you know? 
five different and the slichas represent it, you know? The slichas of Ne'ilu are the highlights from all the slicha services we're saying. Yashmienu Salachti. It's just very special, you know? And here's the point. It's a day of five different prayers. It's something so incredible. And the slichos are really an opportunity to help us understand better what this day is. It's, it's really moving from one move to the next. And, and it really is, um, it really tries to put us in, in each one in a different place, in a different frame of mind, and to, I think, to try to get at different aspects of our own personality and to see ourselves in a whole variety of different ways. And to go through this, to go through this, it's not an ordeal because I think it's very uplifting, but it's a difficult work and to try to capture what it's really about. As opposed to, I would say, getting through the day. You know what I mean? You're getting through the day. It's a pathetic commentary on our situation, that the way Yom Kippur is, that no understanding. And I'll say something else that for the most part, the leadership that we have has done an abysmal job in conveying, even on any level, what this day is actually about and explaining. Because it, it, I would say that nobody could possibly understand the Yom Kippur service. It is so complicated. What is all these words? What is essential? What is secondary? I mean, so that is, the, the, to me, the value of the slichot, what's lost by not saying them. You can still study them, and then you don't say them, but they really, I think, give us a sense of what each service is really about. I'll, I'll mention one other thing about the Yom Kippur service that's very interesting, anomalous. And that is, you know, we are saying the vidui throughout Yom Kippur, the confessions. There's the long confession and the short confession. The long one, this alchet, is this very lengthy acrostic about all these different sins. And then there's the short confession, Ashamna. And we say this actually even even before Yom Kippur, in Mincha before Yom Kippur, we're also saying this and we're saying this in, at night and the morning and Musaf and Mincha until we get to the last prayer, until we get to Ne'ilah. And Ne'ilah, it's very striking. In Ne'ilah, we don't have the long confession. We have the little confession, Ashamda, that we have, but we don't have the long confession. And in its place, we have one of the more remarkable prayers of Yom Kippur. In fact, it's very interesting that in the Talmud, the Talmud asks the question, what is Ne'ilah? What is Ne'ilah? And there, Amar Rav, Tefilah Yeterta, said Rav, it's a whole extra prayer, as we do. It's a whole other Shemona Esrei. It's a fifth. Shmuel says no. Shmuel's opinion in the Talmud seems to be that Ne'ilah was not a whole other Shemona Esrei. It was a few lines. And what does Shmuel say the prayer is? Shmuel says, and we of course say this in our service in Ne'ilah, that the key prayer of Ne'ilah is which is if I, in this particular Machzor, 250, yes. 250 in this Machzor, the Adul Machzor. First, Oshamdu, the short, the short, the short uh, confession, and then, Atono ten yadu poshim vimincha pshuta lekabel shavim. The translation here, which is not the great, you give your hand to transgressors, your right hand is stretched forth to receive the repentance. 
You have taught us, God, to make confession before you of all our sins, that we may stay our hands from violence. Then we will, we will receive, yeah, you, you, you will receive us back in perfect penitence as fire offerings and as sweet savored sacrifices for the sake of the words you have spoken. There is no end to the fire offerings we owe, nor to the sweet savors for our trespasses. We know that our latter end is the worm, and therefore you have multiplied our, your forgiveness. What are we? What is our life? What our piety? What our righteousness? What is our salvation? What our strength? What is our might? What can we say before you, right? Are not the mighty ones as naught? The men of fame, they were not. Wise men without knowledge, etc. Devoid of discretion. The multitude of, of, of their works is emptiness. The days of their life are vanity. But the preeminence of the human being over the beast is naught. All is vanity. That's the first paragraph. The next paragraph is remarkable. But you have set the human being apart from the beginning. Acknowledge that he will stand before you. Who can say, what do you? If, if one be righteous, what good is that to you? However, you have given us, God, uh, this day of atonement to be an end of forgiving and the pardoning of all our iniquities. We may stay our hand from violence and return to, uh, to you to perform the statutes of the, your will with perfect heart. Now, what is that about, actually? This is actually the key prayer of Ne'ilah. Followed by the paragraph, remarkable, You have set the human apart from the beginning and recognized the ability to stand before you. These are two different paragraphs, and they seem to be saying two very different things. The first one speaks about human inability to do anything, actually. We have no wisdom, we have no understanding. The preeminence over the beast is naught for all is vanity. That's the first paragraph. But you have out, you stretched out your hand to us, right? You, and you have taught us to confess. For what purpose? The translation is bad here, but What is the confession? It's a confession of one sin. In this, in this, in this, this is the vidui of the, this is the great confession of, 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 of the last prayer of Yom Kippur. In vidui. I'll get to that in a second. What does it mean, vidui? There's one thing mentioned. The violence of our... Oshek is actually theft. That's what Oshek is. That we may stop the theft of our hands. What is that about? That's the confession. So I will say two things about this, this confession. And what, what I think the vidui of Ne'ilah actually is is different than any other vidui, obviously. There are two things. First of all, the first point is that the, the confession, what do you mean the theft of our hands? Theft of our hands means that we are in a world which is not our world. Everything we're taking, we take because God is granting us the ability to take it. And if you take things without God granting you the ability, then you, then you're a thief because you're taking from God's world without, without permission. And the truth is, that this expression, actually, I believe, is taken from the Bible and from a very relevant passage in the Bible because we have another custom, tradition, which is already found in the Talmud, a strange one. And that is that Mincha Yom Kippur, Mincha on every single fast day has the same Haftorah, which is very beautiful. Tirshu Hashem Behimot So, from Isaiah chapter 56. It's awesome, man. 
seek God when God is present. The strangest thing is, in the Talmud, it identifies that Haftarah with, with Yom Kippur, but we don't say it. Instead of Dushu Hashem Behim we say something different. We read the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, it says that Jonah came to the city of Nineveh, and he said to the city of Nineveh, in 40 days, you've, you've, God is overturning your city. That's all he said. And the king of Nineveh got off his throne, and he, said, and he put on sackcloth. He says, he, he says to the people, we have to repent. Repent from what? And every person should repent from his evil ways. And from what? And from the Hamas, which means the violence, or from the theft, which is in their hands. That's the repentance of Jonah. The book of Jonah. The composer of the prayer took that line from Jonah that we just read, just before Neilah, and says, everybody should... We, you have taught us to confess as the king of Nineveh did and the people of Nineveh from the theft that is in their hand. I mean, because in a sense, that's what we're saying. If we're living in God's world and you take it inappropriately, you don't give, take what God has given you, but something God has not given you. This is the great confession. So everything can be reduced in a sense. So the first piece of it actually speaks of our, I would say, our, our inability to, to really understand. God is stretching out God's hand to us because we don't even know what to say. Tell me what, t- teach me what I should say. You have taught us to confess all of our sins. We don't ourselves have any words, but you have compassion upon us because we're, because we're mortal. And therefore, who are we anyway? Ma'anu mechayenu mechasteinu. And then suddenly, remarkably, the next paragraph, but you have set the human being aside from the beginning. For what purpose? You recognize the ability to stand before you, to stand before God, which we're doing Yom Kippur. To stand before God means as a, almost as a kind of equal. It's not falling down to the ground. It's And then, of course, it makes no sense. Well, who can tell you what to do? It's a verse from Eov. Nonetheless, this is our opportunity. So it, it speaks to, I say, the vidui. What do you mean vidui? How is this a confession? But the word vidui has two different meanings in Hebrew. One is to confess. That's the vidui. But it has another meaning also, which is lahodot. Modi manach nulach. doesn't mean we confess before you. We acknowledge. And the point over here this, to me, is the great confession of Yom Kippur. This is not so simple. The, what we're struggling to do here at the end of Yom Kippur is to figure out, who am I, actually? Who, who is the one that stands before God? What does it mean to be a human being, actually? That, that was Jonah's question, actually. And that's God's response in one form or another. To be a human being means to be something who's broken. To be a human means not to understand. We're praying so much for things that probably aren't even good for us, you know? What do we know? We, we confess. We don't know. We, we think we're so wise. We're not so wise. On the other hand, it's about human possibility. For whatever reason, you've singled us out. And we're trying to figure out, trying to acknowledge, to get a good take on who, who in fact, are we. That's the vidu of Ne'ila. It's different than all the other viduyim. It's not about sin, by the way. It doesn't say much, much about sin altogether. It talks about the human condition. That's what it talks about. Both the 
both the side of us that our recognition of our severe limitations that that comes through very clearly throughout and that from that perspective it's an act of grace or this forgiveness that is very important on the other hand there's a danger in thinking that you're nothing because if you're thinking you're nothing you think you don't matter and that's dangerous for Yom Kippur because we have to believe we do matter because if we don't matter then why, then why will we even do anything but the whole point of Yom Kippur is that we have to act true true that there are severe limitations we recognize all that on the other hand you have set us apart from the very beginning and therefore you gave us this opportunity we say and now we've come to the end of this process that's how we see Yom Kippur as the kates the kates means the end the time and the end this whole process has come to a conclusion it's time now to sum it all up and time to move forward and uh, then of course we are uh, appealing to God's mercies once again because you don't want the world to be destroyed which of course once again takes us back to Jonah now that was God's answer to Jonah Jonah had a very good question what do you mean you're going to forgive him aren't you a truthful God how, can you, how do you erase the past and furthermore do you really believe they're going to really repent how do you know Let's see, how they are in, let's, let's see how they are in seven years from now. Where, 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 where is Ninveh in seven years from now, you know? God's answer is, okay, but these are my, but these are my creations. That's the point. I, I don't view them as strangers. You have mercy on the little gourd that died. You feel so terrible. How can I not have mercy on, on, God, on God's creations? On all the people that don't know the right hand from, from, from the left. And God says, and also the animals. These are also my creations. So I don't approach it as an object, as a bystander. These are, these, are, these are things I care deeply about. And I don't treat my creations the way I treat something that's not my creation. So therefore, we, at the end of the day, we are appealing to, to God in that aspect. Because if God would do otherwise, there'd be no world. That's what God says to John. I have no world otherwise. And you don't want the world to be destroyed. Therefore, you accept our, our, I would say our, our incomplete atonement. We recognize that it's incomplete for a simple reason, because there's so much we don't understand. So how can you have a completed tshuva? You don't understand it, right? We don't even know what we did wrong, right? We don't know what our possibilities are. So how can you have a full repentance? Not possible. So at the end of the day, it is an act of grace, no doubt. But the vidui is interesting. The vidui is to try to get a sense of who we actually are. And I think I will say one point about Yom Kippur and about prayer in general that I think that for certain elements of, a certain approach to prayer, this is an approach that I became very attracted to many years ago. Actually, it was when I got involved to some extent, I used to go to the Kabach synagogue to pray. It wasn't about Shlomo Kabach himself at all, actually, though he obviously had a major impact there, but it was about a different way to see prayer. And I think what comes through in this approach is that the key piece of it, which is why the singing is, is important for him and all that, the words are more important, but the point is to get a correct sense about who, who, who is standing before God. The correct sense means to see ourselves with our imperfections, the brokenness, holy schleppers, you know? We're all, we're all the same. We're all broken people. And the moment you understand that, you can actually empathize with the other guy that's broken. You can actually have a deep connection to the other person and you can stand honestly before God. Because I stand, the, the real me is standing, not my fantasies about who I am, not the success. That's all false. 
It's the broken person that stands, the broken person, the sinful person, the mortal person, the limited person. Once you get that straight, then you can actually pray. Then you can connect to God, and then you can begin to connect in the deepest way to, to the rest of humanity, as broken as we are. And you realize, if, if, if by good fortune, I'm not sleeping on the park bench, but I could be. That's the point. Could be. It could be me. That's very important. That's what comes through in the ego. That's the vidui. That's the real vidui. The acknowledgement of who I am. And then, given who I am, I stand before you honestly, if we can ever get to that place, then we have all kinds of commitments. Then, with who I really am, I'm going to make the deep connections to my world, to the people around me. I'm going to try to do the best I can, recognizing my own imperfections. At the end of Yom Kippur, that's, this is the great vidui of the ego. What a day, you know? It's awesome, actually. And... Uh, it's hard to convey it, you know what I mean? The words don't actually capture it. The only way to learn about prayer is actually to experience it with people who actually pray. It's very special.